The book of Proverbs preserves the instructions of a court sage or of a father's counsel to his son concerning how to live a life of moral skill. The book rests on the absolute conviction that God is. He is there. He is creator and architect of the universe to whom all things owe their life and their allegiance. Proverbs also rests on the conviction that we are sinners by nature. Sinners who ignorantly, recklessly, even rebelliously choose to live out of sync with God's moral order. Inheriting the fallen nature of Adam, we disregard our Creator's counsel and we follow the cravings of our disordered desires. Laboring under these convictions, the book of Proverbs counsels us to attain moral skill by synchronizing our lives with the reality of God's moral order. And prominent in this body of moral instruction are exhortations concerning sexual wisdom. We have made our way through a couple of chapters here, but we see this instruction coming, first of all, in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. You may want to just skim that as you look at that instruction there to the son who is to be equipped with moral wisdom. We find the entire fifth chapter given over to this theme. The second half of the sixth chapter is given to this theme. And the entirety of Proverbs chapter 7 is given to this theme of sexual purity. You get the distinct impression as you work your way through that this is kind of an important topic. It's really not too hard to see this as we work our way through and have come to this place in our journey through this topic. To live with moral skill, we must understand that God designed sex to be a total spiritual emotional and physical union between a man and a woman. And such union is impossible outside of a covenant of lifelong commitment in marriage. God's will, as He defines it in His Word, is for robust, joyful sex within marriage and no sex outside of the covenant bond of marriage. This is his call to the individual, but we must understand that this is a call also for the community. It is not just a matter of the individual, but it is a matter of how the whole community responds. And so individuals are to follow the instruction of God so that the church is built up, so that the community is built up. Indeed, even the nation is built up in the truths that God has laid out in his word. Now the reality is, we face a culture that is very opposed on these matters of God's counsel. There is temptation to break away from the Creator's design. And the need is to arm ourselves with moral skill. To know the truth that God counsels in His Word. To know how to handle temptation in the unique setting in which we find ourselves. To learn to actively obey God's wisdom. It is precisely this kind of skill the godly father seeks to instill in his son in Proverbs 7, where we encounter a memorable warning against the dangers of sexual seduction. There's a little bit of a danger right at this place that we kind of tune out for some of us. I realize that there are those that these things don't make any sense at this point in your life, but they will as you grow and as you mature. There will be others who say this really isn't a problem in my life. You are 
on the verge of insanity to say that. It is a problem in your life. If for no other reason, the younger generations growing up around you who need your counsel and wisdom on these things. But it reminds me of a man, I was a member in a church with two men, two older men, and this conversation took place between them. I don't remember the guy's names, but the youngest of the old men said to the oldest, so when does the sex drive end? You're going to have to ask somebody older than me, was his response from this very old man. We don't know necessarily how that uh, desire continues throughout the end of life. There certainly is a time of tremendous intensity which doesn't continue through life. But this remains a problem at various ages and stages. But I think even those that have not matured to a place of understanding this are nonetheless under an assault right now in our culture. They might be two and three years of age and it's showing up on the television screen every day in their homes. Perhaps not in all of our homes, but that's the culture in which we live. And on the other end of the scale, there is continuing temptation for many into their 80s and beyond. But all of us, this is an issue because of the struggles of the culture in which we live And so sexual instruction is applicable to every one of us to varying degrees. But let me add this point. It is also instructive to us because it is the same counsel God gives on every sin. At the end of the day, sexual sin is like every other sin, a temptation to yield to our desires in disregard of God's will as He has laid it out in His Word. And this is always unwise. So the godly father turns to this important aspect of his son's moral education and labor. In the first four verses, he strives to gain a hearing. But in a sense, we hear through his words, the words of God to us with every temptation to sin and disregard God's word as we listen to the cravings of the flesh. First, an introductory call to heed wisdom, which is common to these discussions on sexual fidelity and faithfulness. Chapter 7 and verse 1, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. The father makes no apologies. He pleads with his son to hear his instructions. Son, what I have to say is very valuable. Listen to me. Make my teaching your treasure. There is life in my words and there is death without them. Hear me, he says. The rest of verse 2, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Something's thrown at us and we just naturally cover our face and our eyes and protect our eyes. They're the most sensitive part of our body and perhaps in many respects among the very most important parts of our body. They're valuable and sensitive. And the analogy is protect the Father's instruction as something that is very, very valuable and to be protected and never forgotten. Verse 3, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. We might say, tie a ribbon around your finger or write on the palm of your hand with a pen, but don't ever forget it. Write it on the tablet of your heart. Make it something that you memorize and never forget. Say to wisdom, verse 4, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend. Son, live with moral skill. Heed my counsel. Make my words precious to you. 
At verse 5, the father announces the burden of this particular lesson between father and son when he says all of this is to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Both words that we have translated here, adulteress and forbidden woman, mean in the Hebrew language, foreigner or stranger. Perhaps the English translators do this to keep us from misunderstanding and thinking that we're talking here about somebody from another nation. The idea, though, is a stranger or a foreigner, one who is estranged from her husband and estranged from her God. She is outside this young man's legitimate circle of intimacy as well. She is, in that sense, a stranger. As the text develops, it becomes clear this foreigner is a military foe. But this antagonist to everything God desires for this young man comes on hard with smooth words. You notice there at the end of verse 5, the adulteress with her smooth words. What's happening here? You note the connection. What are the verse, first four verses done? This aggressive desire to gain a hearing from the son on the part of the father. Now here is a woman who comes with a different set of words, a different kind of speech. And the question really arises as to who will the son heed? Will the son heed the words of his father? on wisdom and the counsel of God? Or will he heed the smooth and creamy and luscious words that drip from the tongue of the seductress? The question is out there, and the answer comes from the heart of this young man. In verses 6-22, through 22, the father unfolds a vivid and tragic drama before his son's imagination, for his son's edification. Beginning at verse 6, he lays it out. Here's the setting, what the father observes. For at the window of my house... I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Archaeologically, we would understand that the man is on a second floor. There is an open window, no glass yet at this point in time, but an open window with wood slats protect the house from the elements, but allow people to look out without being seen on the inside. Here he is like an angel hovering over the scene, and he looks down upon the street and sees this whole thing play out before his eyes. She doesn't know he's watching. The young man doesn't know that he's watching. But here is his father watching this situation unfold from his perch on his second floor. There comes along a man who is simple, A man who is, the text says, lacking sense. This means that he is morally naive. Not intellectually dumb necessarily, but morally ignorant and thus uniquely vulnerable to temptation. Now remember the conviction of the book of Proverbs. We are morally bent against the law of God. This man is not sufficiently conscious of that fact. He's unarmed against the temptations of the flesh. He saunters through the streets, unaware that moral dangers lurk in the shadows of the gathering darkness. Moral weakness and temptation are about to collide, but he is not a man who prays God not lead him into temptation. He's unprepared. He is unaware. She is ready, and she's dressed to kill. Verse 10, and behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She comes to meet him, which is a Hebrew military term. 
She comes to confront him. He doesn't see it that way, but she has wily heart. That is crafty, sly intent. She presents a full-scale frontal assault on the young man, and he detects nothing but the attractiveness of her body. That's all he sees. He should detect, by the way that she is dressed, that she is dangerous. But he's a moral dullard, a dim-witted fool. Verse 11, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. The valiant wife of chapter 31 busies herself outside the home. What is she doing? She goes outside the home to gain food and to gain clothing for her family and bring it back to the den. This woman leaves her home to attack and to grasp and to harm. She does not stay at home. She busies herself on the street capturing men. She is a turbulent soul, the Hebrew text indicates. Restless, boisterous, aggressive. She seems to be the woman that many young people in our culture follow very carefully. Boisterous, restless, aggressive, impatient. Verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. She speaks. In verse 13, we find that she latches on to him. She says to him with bold face, I have had to offer sacrifices today. Contextually, she probably presents herself as a shrine prostitute who has just offered a sacrifice. That is, all we think about sacrifices, that's not something that we do. But in this context, in this day, that would have jogged a certain understanding and relationship of words. She offers a sacrifice. She's presenting herself as a prostitute. Remember the prophets who said this kind of activity was taking place in Israel on the top of every hill and under every large tree. It was indeed taking place in pagan shrines throughout the ancient world. The point was a cult prostitute honoring the fertility gods would present a sacrifice and very parallel to the Hebrew sacrifices, the concept was that the fat and the entrails were taken up by the fire and were consumed by the god or goddess. What was left partially was given to the priest to eat and the rest was taken home or used there at the temple, at the pagan temple. That's not the setting here, but it would be at the pagan temple. And it was now the cult prostitute's job to find a man. To enjoy this meat together with him and to enjoy much, much more in their intimacy together in the fertility cult. She's playing, apparently, this part. It may not be real. It may not be actual. It appears that she just wants to have a sexual encounter while her husband is away, but this is how she presents herself. She has fresh meat to eat, and she must find a man with whom to share it. She's really interested in dining on his meat and will, in the process, suck his soul dry. She may be lying here, but at any rate, 
That is not where his brain is going on whether she is telling the truth or not. For she seizes him. She latches on to him in verse 13 and kisses him and says, I have these sacrifices. Verse 15, so now you see the connection. I've offered sacrifices. He doesn't say, what on earth has that got to do with anything? There's a follow-through. So now I have come to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I have found you. I need to be with a man and you're the one. She tells him everything he wants to hear. You are the special one to me. It is a lie, but his brain becomes putty in her hand as his glands take over. Verse 16, I have spread my couch with coverings, covered linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. We don't have time to look into the ancient context of these ideas, but suffice it to say, it is a place of great beauty and luxury and pleasing to all of the senses. All he has to do is agree to be her special guest, to come into her house, to let himself go and enjoy the fragrant, silky delights of her bedroom and now the true appeal verse 18 come let us take our fill of love till morning let us delight ourselves with love this is the crux of her efforts and speeches everything is perfect everything is ideal come in but there's one potential fear that must be put aside what if they are caught Verse 19, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home. She's got an answer for that as well. My husband has got a, he's on a long trip. There's a big bag of money. I know he'll be gone a long time. He said he's coming back at the full moon when many businessmen would travel. Uh, It's for safety in the night and there's no chance of our being caught. It's really Satan's logic, isn't it? You hear the echo from the garden. You will not surely die. Satan's logic continues to deceive us with this idea. You can violate the law of God and get away with it. There are no consequences for this sin. We need to consider that idea because it is so prevalent in our setting and what we must prepare to address You know, we could take this chapter and rewrite it from the opposite angle and it would fit very well within our culture and is obviously very applicable. But there are men who are equally as predatory as this woman who know how to whisper all the right words into a young woman's ear, who know how to say all of the right things and send all of the right text messages By God's grace, you'll never be in that spot. But if you are, there will be a place where he will persuade you to give to him what is yours to give only to your husband. And the thought will undoubtedly cross your mind, no one will ever know. It's a lie. It is a lie. And men, there are all forms of anonymous sex available to us in this culture. And somewhere along the line, the thought always comes from Satan. No one is ever going to know. There will be no consequences for this. Now, some consequences of sin may never become public. That is certainly true. But it's my experience that it's far less often the case than people think. 
even in the grace and mercy of God, there may be a time when you turn from your sin and admit to others what you have done. But when you are in such moments, we need to learn to counsel our own minds that it is a lie. No one will ever know. You'll get away with it. There will be no consequences. This is what Satan always says. It's not true. While the consequences may never become public, there are always consequences. To play with sin is to play with fire. It does not end well. Ever. I may speak to some who disagree. Just wait. Just wait. We're not done yet until we meet Christ. You will never, ever, ever be thankful that you violated the will of God. Ever. Not in the end. Not through eternity. And really never here. Because there's no joy in it. Only in the moment. Only for a short season. Never in the end. And though this brings to us deep thoughts of our own sin and our own failure, we stop and we pause and we say, we're here today. We're here today because we're not running from the counsel of God, but we realize the joy of sins forgiven and the confidence that they have been washed clean. But never with any sin that is washed clean do I look at it and say, it sure was fun to enjoy it while it lasted. We just say, thank God for his forgiveness. Don't buy the lie. You can get by with it. There are no consequences. It's not true. Never, ever is that true. And the father analyzes what has taken place before him. Verse 21, he brings the final conclusion in the horrifying report that with seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. He watches as the young man goes with her into the darkness of her home. He yields. And what is really going on as he walks into this place of sensual delights, what is really taking place is described in verse 22. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Perhaps he thinks it is all humanizing. He's just being a human being. He's just being a man. He's just experiencing what is natural. It's not humanizing at all. It's animalizing. You become like a powerful ox walking willingly to the butcher who will cut your throat with a knife like a deer caught in a noose and then pierced by a hunter's arrow like a bird in a snare. All three are naive to the danger they've walked into. Sin always has its consequences. They are never good. In the grace of God, they are forgiven as we come to repentance. But that is only because we have changed our mind about those sins and about our relationship with God. They never bring lasting joy. Only momentary pleasure 
that leaves sorrow and regret. Don't go here. And the final warning from the Father brings to close where the whole thing started, to gain a hearing from His Son, as He says in verse 24, And now, O Son, listen to Me, and be attentive to the words of My mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Do not fall to her deceptive, restless, seductive, sensual, unfaithful, rebellious, reckless, alienating ways. Don't give in. She's a stranger to her husband, to her community, to her God. May she ever be a stranger to you. Do not get involved with her. 4, verse 26, Many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Every fiber of your physical being will find strong appeal, but do not yield. What looks on the outside to be nothing but life and pleasure is actually death and sorrow. There may be pleasure for sin in a season, but that season ends and it never returns. And so you have the choice, verse 2, to live by following my words or to die by following her invitation, verse 27. Whose voice will you heed? My words or hers? And the question that rises then, obviously, for us is whose voice we will heed. Whose voice will we heed? There are a lot of different applications within our setting and within our culture. But whether for good or ill, our culture is predisposed toward dating relationships among unmarried people or once married people. This is just the way it is. And in our culture, there is provided in the dating relationship an unprecedented degree of isolation and privacy and intimacy before marriage. We do not live as the Israelites did in a culture that protected young unmarried women. We live in a culture that basically turns everyone over to the wolves, in some respects it seems. But we've got to learn how to negotiate this kind of relationship, this kind of coming together of a man and a woman in marriage, and to guard that process, because our world is broken when it comes to the guidelines for such relationships. And I would say to those who are in dating relationships, or hope to be someday, or to those who have no clue what I'm talking about yet, (laughs) to you as well, I think it is very, very foolish in our day and setting to be involved in a dating relationship and to close off all counsel from those who have been married. They know some things. You are on the precipice of insanity to shut off their voices. Talk to godly people who understand the process who know how it's brought together, who know the temptations and the trials that you need to avoid. Talk to good people. Remain accountable. This should be a community relationship to a degree. Not an isolated, one-on-one, private relationship. There's danger in that. Talk to those who are older. Make it an open discussion. 
And we have got to learn how to negotiate and to navigate such relationships because people are being destroyed by them. That's not wise living. We have as well within our culture the whole trial of pornography which affords to us an unprecedented degree of isolation and privacy as well. It is something that was not known in this day, in chapter 7, and we have to take the concepts and move out into our culture and our setting. We have got to address this problem, because it is corrupting the church of Jesus Christ. We need to understand strategies. We need to understand accountability. There need to be commitments of lines that we draw and never walk over for the love of God, for the good of His people, and for the joy of our own souls. There are things you cannot put in front of your eyes. You just can't do it. You can't play with it. You can't flirt with it. You can't pretend that you're strong. You can't do it. We've got to understand this, and we've got to make progress through our lives. And there is the area that we must discuss as well, not only of what is on, uh, in picture form, but what is truly relational. I could well speak to somebody who is predisposed right at this moment and bent toward an affair. It happens to good people, people whose lives would seem to be online with others. That merges into a fourth category, and that's a category of fantasy. It may not be visual stimulation, which is destroying our whole culture, indeed. But it may just be fantasy through a novel, through a television show, through some sort of means that your brain is going off at times, sort of escaping off into these pretend worlds where you imagine certain things and fantasize about certain things and sexual matters. This is danger zone. Don't go there. We must develop strategies and ways of staying clear of such thinking. Developing accountability, faithfulness to one another and seeking to have a mind that is purified by the truth of God. Now, the whole thing, these are matters of temptation and problem because we understand the lure. We understand the sensual drive and the interest in it all on a lot of different levels among different ages and the different sexes. and all. We, there is a struggle here, a temptation. We need to learn to deal with the temptation. And for some, the Spirit of God may have His finger upon you and say, it is a time today to repent. You need to turn from what you're doing and to come back into my counsel and to know my purposes and to walk in purity with me. Is He saying that to you? You would be a fool to walk away from the counsel of God and I would plead with you to get alone with Him today and to seek His face in prayer and to ask forgiveness, and to plead that you start a new journey in a new direction today. Parents, we got a truckload to consider here, and I can only take a few moments, but do you talk like this guy? 
I wonder how many children in our church would read Proverbs 7 and say, my dad would never talk like that. I'd never have a conversation like that with my mom. Nothing anywhere close to it. I hope that's not the case with anyone. Now, there's an appropriate age and there's an appropriate level of of discussion. And this, of course, is at perhaps the most intense time in a young man's life as he's growing up within a home. I understand all of that. But is this a discussion you can have with your children? There are some who take the approach through various means that we are going to isolate our children from all such temptation. We're, not, we're going to keep them innocent so that they don't have to enter into these thoughts. And there might be a noble thought there. And, and certainly to some degree, protecting the innocence of our children is a legitimate process. But it can go far too far because we don't live in a world that's protecting them. We live in a world that's assaulting them on the highways as they drive down the street. And even two and three year olds as they watch animated shows. It's everywhere if you watch for it and know it's there. And we've got to begin to help our children to understand these things. Isolating them is only going to lead them to a particular time where they're overwhelmed. The other thing is, is that this view of isolation is really missing the whole point. It assumes that the problem is on the outside. And if we can put walls up around our children and protect them, we'll keep them from such troubles. The problem is that the problem is on the inside. And that's what you're missing altogether if you have that view. The problem is the heart which is bent to disagree with what God says is good and right and best. And if we don't address that within the real context of these temptations, we are going to miss our children. I don't care how isolated you keep them. There's going to be a day when a horse breaks free from the barn. And they need to be prepared and ready. The problem is that there's sin which resides in them. And it has to be addressed. What is God's counsel here? How does he go about this? How does our Heavenly Father strategize here? First of all, he frankly presents a real picture. He doesn't go into gory detail as such, but boy, he's not messing around here, is he? I mean, this is pretty straightforward what temptation is like, what it looks like. He frankly presents a real picture. Secondly, he coaches carefully on how to read people and situations to develop discernment. We've got to do this coaching, sadly, in our day. Thirdly, he proclaims the consequences of sin and of obedience. Holding high the glory of obedience and showing the consequences of sin. And fourthly, he appeals to the will. You have to want to do right. I can't keep you from this temptation, ultimately. There will be things I will do. There are things we're not going to watch in this family. There are things you're not going to order. There's things you're not going to do. But I cannot ultimately keep you from temptation. You're going to have to want it. And as we lay that out, we need to drive at the conscience and drive at the heart. And all of us, indeed, past this particular point, need to come to understand Satan's tactics. So often we're like this young man just traipsing through the shadows of temptation. 
We need to talk about Satan's schemes, not to a point where we enter in as voyeurs into what he is doing, but understanding how to resist temptation. Sex outside a marriage covenant is a bitter drink. It offers complete physical intimacy while withholding emotional and spiritual oneness. And God says this is a path to death. The question is for us today, are we now living with moral skill? If there are matters in your past which need to be forgiven, then you need to repent and seek the forgiveness of God. But if you have done that, no matter what has happened in your past, no matter where you have violated the law of God, the question today is, am I now today walking in the wisdom of God? Am I moving forward to His glory? Are you? If you are not, if you are bent in the wrong direction, you have heard God's Word. In these last three weeks, we have discussed it carefully and pointedly. You have heard His Word. Don't despise it. Are you arming yourself against the moral temptation of Satan's schemes? By God's grace, we will and know the joy of the purity of life to which he calls us. We have all failed in our unique ways, or will, as time progresses. We will. But there is the forgiveness of God, there is the counsel of his word, and there is today and there is tomorrow. And we can live by his mercy, in his forgiveness, in his grace, and in his purity. Is that you? Can you have this discussion with a younger person? Are you living it out? Do you understand this father's heart of the danger, the destruction, and the horror of violating God's truth in this area and in every area where we disregard his word? May we put sin to death and enter in to the death of Christ and the death to sin. Let's bow for prayer. We plead, Father, for your grace, for insight and understanding. I pray in behalf of anyone who may be separated from you and ask that they would come to saving faith today, knowing that it is not only sexual sin that is an issue, knowing that just to look upon one with lust is tantamount to adultery in your mind, but God, that they'd look even beyond that and realize that in many, many ways, We violate your will. We do not love you with all of our heart. We do not treat you as God. But I pray that you'd show such a one that the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover their sin and that you would bring them to saving faith in Christ's death and resurrection today. We pray, Father, in behalf of those of us who know you, some who are young enough to be somewhat confused, some who are old perhaps and beyond particular and unique daily temptation. Whoever we are and whatever our situation, may we pull one another up in the faith and be faithful to our calling and honor your word as life, despising sin as the path of death. May we make spiritual progress and bring glory to your name as we praise you for your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.